Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a we have a legend, you know, that is going to be joining us. You know, someone that has done it so many times and so successful that I was like losing, losing the amount of times that he's done. You know, unbelievable. Uh, we're going to be talking about building. We're going to be talking about scaling and everything in between and also about having some really nice, successful outcomes. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Amit Haller. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here, Alejandro. So obviously, I mean, today we're going to have here the battle of accents, you know, the Israeli accent, the Spanglish, you know, going on that I have on my end too. But nonetheless, we're going to be talking about coming to this beautiful country, the U.S. Now, in your case, born in Israel, how was life growing up there? Give us a walk through memory lane. Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, that was an awesome, uh, awesome period for me to grow in Israel. Grew up uh, with uh, with a lot of opportunities to to innovate, to learn uh, freedom, and and even the, through my military service, that was uh, probably an amazing experience for me. That's where I learned a lot about technology. I, I served kind of in a technological unit, so um, best time of my life. Following by the second part of the best time of my life, which is in the U.S. Now, one thing that I see a lot, you know, from founders that come from Startup Nation is that they, they need to do the military service. Uh, and um, what what does that give you? I mean, I'm sure it's like incredible discipline. I mean, you guys are so well prepared for becoming entrepreneurs and for really dealing with the unknown and for problem solving. So how does the culture of Startup Nation, of innovation, and then also the discipline of being in the military, how does that prepare one to be successful as an entrepreneur later on? Yeah, I mean, it definitely has a lot to do with uh, with uh, the, this preparation for, for the entrepreneurship in general and for the real life in particular. Uh, you take uh, 18 years old kids and overnight change their mindset, right? I mean, so, and the mindset is about, it's about discipline. It's about the, the importance of, of what they do every day. It's about a uh, very hard work. I mean, walking 16 hours a day, it's becoming, uh, it's becoming a norm. Six, uh, seven days a week for, uh, sometimes. And, and it's a, it's a mission-driven, right? I mean, which is exactly what you have in the startup. You have the mission. You know exactly why you do it. Uh, the, uh, you are surrounded by people which are subscribing to exactly the same mission. And, and that's what uh, keeps you going. Uh, you build over their friendship for lives. By the way, we'll talk more about it, I guess, uh, later on today. But some of those friends from 35 years ago, they're still with me in this company, right? I mean, so, wow. so the, the friendship that you are building over there are, are really based on trust and common values and common mission. And that's, uh, that's take you a long way. So after three, four, five years, depends, depends different, uh, the different journeys you take in this military, you're actually uh, walking into the, into the real world very well prepared. So then let's talk about walk, walking into the real world more than prepared. Because, I mean, you walked into entrepreneurship and you did it with a bang, you know, with butterfly communications. You know, in fact, I've used my Bluetooth a few times today. And I'm sure that, you know, what you did, you know, really contribute to push things into what we are experiencing today from a technology perspective. So 
What were you guys doing at Butterfly Communications and how was that journey of all of a sudden you are running a company in Israel, but then you end up coming to the U.S.? Yeah, um, I would love to tell you that uh, we had this brilliant strategy and we understood how we are going to take the world in a storm, but unfortunately, it's not the case. So the case was really was really kind of a group of team uh, of of people from the same unit I serve that we we had uh, this passion and the bug that we want to be entrepreneurs and we want to do something different and we want to take control of our life, and then we started to think about what we are going to do. Those days, I'm talking about 1992, the venture capitals in Israel were very rare. So we really funded ourselves. I mean, we, we did all kind of uh, uh, subcontracting projects to other companies, in, in particular to communication companies in Israel and some international communication companies as well. And we, we kind of tried to, we started to build our muscle as uh, as entrepreneurs, as a private company, is understanding what uh, what the private sectors are looking for, and uh, and looking for looking our way about what uh, what's how we are going to differentiate, what we are going to build out there. And then we came across uh, to a company that uh, dealt a lot with the in the computer industry, Packer Bell at the time, and Altec Lansing, uh, both companies that are not necessarily there anymore. And, uh, and the entire PC industry started to pick up, and we had a very simple, crazy idea. Can we cut the wires of the mouse, of the keyboard, uh, the, the cellular phone industry started, of the, of the headset, uh, of the speakers, uh, the, the multimedia speakers around the PCs? And we realized that we need to do it very, very cheaply, because in order to be able to penetrate into consumer product, you cannot uh, you cannot provide a solution which is like a military grade. You need to do something which costs dollars down the road, even cents. And that was all new ground play for us. I mean, we we didn't know how to do cheap stuff, but uh, a challenge. We love challenges, and immediately everyone all in. Here's our mission: we are going to replace the the wire with the cost of the wire, but do it wireless. Sounds like almost like an impossible challenge at the time. And, and that's how everything started. And obviously, you know, like in, in this case, you know, with the company, I mean, you guys were doing pretty well. I mean, you raised 17 million. We're talking about the 90s where VC was almost non-existent. You know, I mean, it's pretty amazing. Now everything is developed, you know, in the VC ecosystem. People are raising money all the time. You see it on the press. But at that time, you know, it was quite a success, especially, you know, raising all that money. Now, one thing comes to the next, and then all of a sudden, you guys ended up selling the company to Texas Instruments. Why did you guys, you know, decide that was the best way to go? And how did that transaction come about? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a, the transaction came, came about uh, with us actually approaching Texas Instruments to fabricate our chips because we were a fabulous semiconductor company and we needed a very strong fab relationship. The, uh, the earlier fab relationships we had uh, were not, uh, uh, were not uh, strategic enough and didn't allow us actually to scale and to create, uh, and, and to create the right added value for those chips and the, the semiconductor and at the right cost. Our chairman at the time, that was also my co-chair about into this business. I mean, he, for him, it was already kind of the third company, the third startups, and he was very instrumental at the time to bring 
uh, to bring us in front of venture capitals. So my very first tip, coaches, mentors are very, very important in the early stage uh, for, for first-time entrepreneurs. I mean, that's, that's saving a lot of pain and, uh, and, and trouble. And he brought us in front of Texas Instrument, and Texas Instrument started to start to talk about uh, to license our technology and integrate it into their chipset because they were the leader in the cellular industry. Um, and sooner than later, the, the acquisition proposal came from them. And that's, that's kind of a very, very defining moment for, for entrepreneurs. Like, what? I'm going to sell it to them for so cheap? By the way, it was $50 million, a lot of money those days. I mean, especially but, back then. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, but, but entrepreneurs always believe that they're worth much more. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right. That's a that's a part of the of the dilemma. And then basically we we sat down and fought for it and said, okay, why did we start this company? Uh, first and foremost, entrepreneurs don't start companies to make money. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but all the research about entrepreneurs says that they really do it for the product. So there is this giant Texas Instrument recognizing our product. They believe that we did something, something good. They are willing to pay so much money for that. So we are successful. Secondly, we did realize that we need very, very close relationship with uh, with a fab and a real semiconductor company in order to be able to to scale. So here's the number one company out there uh, in this market. And third, yeah, there is exit here. We are going to make money. Maybe we thought you're going to make more money because there's always the dream, but we are making very, very good money around that. So that starts to make sense uh, uh, in, this, um, in, in this context. By the way, something we are so proud of is that the very recent new CEO of Texas Instrument that was appointed on April 1st is a guy from the Butterfly team. So not wow. only we sold the company to Texas Instrument, the new CEO, Javi Vilan, one of the most amazing person, just was appointed to become the new CEO of Texas Instrument. So that's how well we integrated into this company. Now, now the um, first company, first exit, really amazing. How was that, you know, after, after all of a sudden, you know, like you've closed this chapter, you sold your company. Did that feel like... Um, like a roller coaster of emotions to like a sense of loss to a certain degree, because this was your first company. I'm sure that to a certain degree, you thought that you were the company at some point. And then all of a sudden, you know, everything that you knew, you know, it was, it was gone. Did you, did you feel like a sense of loss? Oh, totally. Um, there were a lot of, uh, uh, let's say, micro anecdotes, like, you know, changing the logo on the door the day after from Butterfly to Texas Instrument. And obviously, you know, we are very foolishly. I mean, I know it today in a retrospective, right? But at the time, I thought that our logo looks better than TI, and it's more important. So, so that's that's kind of uh, that's kind of the maturity that takes to to I would say first-time entrepreneurs, but in particular young entrepreneurs, because the this cell was when I was twenty-nine years old, right? And so that was uh, I was also young, relatively uh, yeah, in business and in life in general. Uh, and you have this sense of loss, and uh, uh, initially you start to battle it because uh, because you feel so committed and so. Uh, I mean, it's your baby, right? I mean, it's uh, yeah. and the baby graduates, but you are not uh, willing to let it go yet. So it takes it it, it has this kind of uh, transition, 
but after this transition uh, uh, matured, uh, I, I also allowed myself to let it go and actually to leave Texas Instruments because that was also part of the maturity process for me, putting aside that my entrepreneurship bug never leave me, but putting this aside, it really allowed me to say, well, you know, everything is in good hands. Actually, it's in better hands than my hands. It's going to be in a place that it can grow to, 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 to levels and, and to, to heights that I could never take it myself. It's about time for me to, to move on and to, and to go for the next journey. What happened next? So what happened next is that I was still very much involved in my mindset with Bluetooth. And, and I was really very busy thinking about what Bluetooth can make the world or what type of products can happen with Bluetooth that would never happen before. So now it was not for me anymore about cutting the wires of the mouse is that what is this mouse that doesn't, doesn't exist and could have been exist by Bluetooth? And that's where we came with a concept, the early on of the concept, the name of the company was IXI Mobile. It started in 2000. And we came with the initial concept, which says, you know, we need to build actually distributed devices around the phone as a center. The phones were not smart at the time. I mean, they were, were very, very rarely smartphones at the time, BlackBerry, Palm maybe, there was the Nokia 9100, which was the, the kind of the enterprise version, the calm shell kind of keyboard device. But it was mostly a, what they call at the time feature phones. I mean, phones with a little bit games, a little bit kind of ringtones, but nothing really too smart around. And we came with this crazy idea of, uh, and I'm talking to you about 2000, what about uh, a watch that can be connected uh, with Bluetooth to the phone? And I can change the screens on those watches. And... Uh, and uh, um, hi-fi headsets and uh, gaming devices and all kind of other ideas, way premature. One, because the Bluetooth was not really deployed yet. The network, the bandwidth on the network was not right. Uh, at the time we talked about GPRS, two and a half G, I mean, very, very slow networks. The back office of the networks or the back end of the networks, they were not, uh, were not there yet. And we have even had the project with Seiko to do this Bluetooth watch, but it was running out of battery every 10 minutes. Not very practical, right? I mean, so a, a lot of the technology, the core technology was not, uh, was not at the time. And, and we did develop around all those different devices, we did develop a very interesting concept, which is actually mobilizing what at the time was the killer application for teenagers, instant messaging. And again, talking about 2000, it's ICQ, AOL, Messenger, Yahoo Messaging, etc. All those different, uh, different messaging platforms, the instant messaging at the time, to mobilize them. And that's where we actually evolved into a smartphone. And we did the first teenager smartphone. The product name at the time was Ogo. Uh, focusing on teenagers, focusing on the fact the teenagers of the time, the millennials of today, I guess, uh, uh, didn't want to talk on the phone. They really want to chat all day long. And that was the first massive chatting device out there. was very, very successful when it was launched in the US by AT&T. It was very successful in Europe, in particular in Switzerland, Germany. And this device uh, took by storm. 
until no kidding. iPhone was launched in 2007. And I mean, obviously with this journey, I mean, it was um, unbelievable. I mean, you guys even took the company public. We took the company public in 2006. Uh, funny enough, or maybe not so funny, is that was via a SPAC acquisition. So I even managed to do a SPAC before it was a thing in 2006. Um, by the way, ended up very unfortunate uh, SPAC journey that we see in the recent SPACs that, that we saw a few, few years back. Um, but the company did go public. And by 2008, I thought that uh, it's, uh, it's the time for me, actually, to be very, very candid about it. It's I thought and the board thought <laughs> that it's a time for me to move on uh, from the, yeah. this company. Now, now, obviously, you know, how, how would you say you were saying that the, that the iPhone, you know, came out and that kind of like changed plans for you guys? I mean, how, how do you say that that impacted you guys and, and how were the, um, the events, you know, that raveled after that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, iPhone is a brilliant product. Um, but what way more brilliant about iPhone is the ability of Apple to move the entire ecosystem. No one managed to, to build kind of the, the, the iTunes store. The, uh, no one managed to convince uh, carriers at the time, the cellular carriers, to provide flat fee uh, for, for data usage. They tried to charge by the kilobyte. And uh, they, they were not, uh, uh, they, they didn't manage to go through this threshold of understanding that actually data should be flat and data will overtake uh, minutes of uh, talking minutes or, 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 or basically all the phone calls. And they were still doing, making money out of voicemails. I mean, it was a very, very old day. And Steve Jobs, like only Steve Jobs can do, uh, could have done, actually managed to, to, to bring those carriers into a very different level. And, and that's where Apple really invented the smartphone industry by all means. So, it was a big ecosystem push that only a company like Apple could do. So then in your guys' case, you know, took the company public, you know, in total you did, you know, about 135 million that you raised, you know, between venture capital and then also public money. And then, you know, like, oh, obviously, you know, like things, you know, like uh, come to show in January 2009, you know, that's when you decide that it's time to turn chapter. So uh, how did you come to that realization? IXI Mobile was a very tough company to operate. Uh, the company had software engineering in Israel, hardware engineering in Taiwan, manufacturing in China, customers in Europe, investors in Wall Street, uh, and, uh, and all the business development uh, partners in the Bay Area. I was literally circling Earth, right? I, was, uh, I did the attempt of Superman to try to slow down Earth. It didn't work for me so much, so... So, but I was literally around uh, around uh, around Earth uh, all day long. And I had a two years old girl at the time. I mean, uh, today she's uh, uh, sixteen years old, and I was exhausted. And uh, and I, I I looked for a, a different kind of a balance in my life, right? More than uh, more than anything else. And and I read the book again. And finally, I understood it of the uh, rich dad, poor dad. And I realized that even though I can report uh, financials on the public market, I have no clue how money works. 
And I decided to learn how money works. And uh, obviously, the best way, or not obviously, but the uh, uh, best way for me, at least, was via real estate. I found, uh, I found some mentors. Uh, it was a perfect timing because everything was cheap in 2009. And I thought I'm going to become a real estate investor and will retire. And as the joke goes, real estate investment went very well for me, not because I'm smart, just because I was lucky. Right? I mean, I could do all the, all the mistakes in the book and still make money just because it was 2009. And retirement went very poorly. As they say, luck, you know, luck is preparation meets opportunity. So, uh, I mean, you, you definitely need to generate that luck. Totally. I heard, the, I heard the lecture once of a very smart person, which he says that his entire success is 95% luck and 5% smart. And it was really hoped that the other 5% smart would be also 5% luck. <laughs> right? I mean, so, yeah, luck, luck is, is the fundamental fundamentals of entrepreneurs they need to understand that they can plan all day long but it's really about always keep your eyes open and uh, and uh, take the opportunities hey guys so pardon the interruption here so i gotta tell you that you know for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired you don't have to be alone you know there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy with methodology with process and it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then let's talk about taking the opportunity of beef, because, I mean, here you are, you know, doing real estate left and right. And once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So um, what happened? Coming out of retirement to do it again. What happened with beef? By the way, retirement lasts like two, and a, two months, two and a half months. That's pretty much it. I think I checked the box. I can move on. No retirement for me in life anymore. Uh, so I'm done with retirement for the rest of my life. Uh, as far as Viv, uh, we learned from the ground up. And me and my two other co-founders at Viv, one of them was my head of product in, uh, in IXI uh, as well. And, and a second co-founder I met in the Bay Area. And we really started 
buying foreclosed homes and remodel them and rent them and sell them and flip them. And then we went for uh, small apartment buildings and larger apartment buildings and super large apartment buildings. So it was very evolutionary the way we built our actually real estate experience and understanding. And we did pretty well, actually. At one point, we, we, we managed about half a billion dollars of asset under management. So we've done pretty well about that. Uh, and then we started actually construction of uh, new homes and new apartment buildings and new complexes. And initially it was working very much for our favor because the construction industry had way oversupply and basically almost no demand because people didn't build. But when the market started to recover, it started to flip over and it started to be more and more demands to the point that it was over demand with shortage of supply. And every day the construction cost goes up. And actually, the way I like to describe it, this is the only industry that every year it costs you more, it takes longer, and the quality goes down. Any other industry, it's that way. Everything else is faster, cheaper. And, and better. In, in this case, you know, like one thing, you know, leads to the next year. Now you're with Vive. So the, for the people that are listening to really get, you know, what the company is all about, what ended up being the business model? How do you guys make money? Yeah, I mean, so Vive, in, in, a, in a simplified way, Vive is actually a builder. We build homes. But in a slightly more, uh, if I'm zooming in, Viv is building home as a product. We manage to productize homes in a way that we can build them precisely in a factory, ship those homes in pieces. The pieces are panels. So we ship walls and floors separately, connect them in the field very quickly one to another in a plug and play method, including all the electrical and plumbing and HVAC systems and everything else which goes into the home and building a whole home out of it. Now, the big difference of Viv versus many, many other companies that are, are, typically would be defined as offsite construction or modular construction is that we have a point of view that the home is the ultimate consumer product out there. It's the largest, it's the most used, 65% of our lifetime is inside this home. And it's obviously by far the most expensive. There's nothing more expensive in our life, in most people's life. And once you start to think about the home as a product, you start to think about it very differently. Uh, the materials, the way we fabricate those materials, the precision we do stuff, how we design it in a digital twin environment and how we, how we shift from digital twin into fabrication, into assembly, into maintenance, into the lifetime support. We start to think about it much more like, like a car, like a phone, like uh, the, most, uh, uh, the most important product in people's life versus as a construction site, as a collection of tra uh, trades that are building those homes. And, uh, and that's what makes us so, so unique. Now, the beautiful thing is that we manage to win on all aspects. We build way faster than anyone else, actually up to six times faster than traditional homes. We, at cost parity, so there's no premium for that, we created new quality standards. I mean, some name it as the Tesla or the Apple of the homes, kind of. So really try to follow these type of companies that redefining 
redefining markets and, and, and segments. And we are so sustainable. We actually build it with about 50% less of uh, the carbon footprint of traditional construction, which is the most polluting industry out there. 38% of uh, embodied carbon is coming from, from homes, actually. And we build it with 10 times less waste than traditional construction. Actually, 50% of the landfill in the world is construction. So this is crazy. This is the most polluting industry in the world. And we managed to, to dial down those aspects significantly, significantly well. And uh, for Beef also, you guys have raised quite a bit of money. How much capital have you guys raised today? We raised today about $400 million. That's a lot of money. So why so much money? Oh, it's a, it's a great question. When I started Viv as a technology company, when we shifted into technology company, we were a little bit uh, overshoot of ourselves. We said, hey, you know, we've done semiconductor, we've done software, we've done backend servers, we've done uh, mechanical engineering, we've done so many different things. I mean, how difficult could be in a construction? And, uh, and we realized that this is by far the most complicated thing we've done in our life. And it's the most multidisciplined industry out there, so highly regulated on so many aspects, many of those regulations for, for the right reasons, right? I mean, so I'm not, I'm not challenging many of those uh, high regulations. It's a product that needs to stand for 50, 70, 100 years over there. Uh, it's a very complicated product. And when you are reinventing a hundreds of years old industry, everything around this industry, the framing, the electrical, the plumbing, the, the drywalls, the, uh, the foundations, because everything needs to be different in order to be able to deliver on this promise. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of effort. The good news is that compared to many other companies that tried uh, to do it in this industry, we are only a fraction of what they raised. Some of those companies used to raise at the time, or raised at the time, billions of dollars. But it's a cheap uh, journey. The opportunity yeah. is unlimited. And it's, it's a limitless opportunity. Now, one thing here that, did, that happened while you were pushing beef, you know, uh, is really. So really comes to the picture in 2015. And uh, basically, you ended up folding the company uh, in 2022, actually. Uh, you guys had raised, you know, about 100 million or so, you know, in there. Uh, and, uh, you know, Obviously, as they say, you either succeed or you learn. So, you know, in this journey with Reali, you were the co-founder and the executive chairman because obviously your full attention is on Vive. But what happened with Reali? I mean, what, what happened there and what was the lesson that you needed to take with you from that journey? Reali was a, a company that was set in order to change significantly the experience of buying a home. Buying a home was a very, or is still a very fragmented process. It's the loans, it's the escrow, it's the title, it's the insurance, it's a, a, it's inspection, buyer agent, selling agent. And this is one of the most uh, frustrating moments in people's life. Actually, I think Zillow did this research that 50% of the buyers are going to cry at least once for this process. Um, and uh, um, and by the way, this is also similar to Viv in many ways. Homes are sh shelters. Shelters, food, and water are the fundamentals of the Maslow hierarchy. 
That's that's the basic of everything in our life. So it really goes very very deep into into everything we do as as, as humanity in our in our life. The promise of really was to simplify this process, reducing the cost of it significantly, creating a one point uh, one focal point for the buyers uh, to buy the home if they need to sell their previous home. And it's actually product wise, the product market fit was very. Uh, very well done and did very, very well. What we learned is that it's very difficult to acquire the customers. By the way, we learned it in the entire, I would say, prop tech industry at the time and still is um, struggling with this process. Part of it, uh, part of it was outside of our control. When we start to figure out how to optimize the advertisement on Facebook and Google and Apple, then these guys changing the algorithms. And the other guys, uh, Apple, OS, uh, the, the iOS is asking for the permission uh, uh, to share the data and, uh, and the cost of acquisition double, triple overnight. Uh, it's really very difficult uh, to, to, to build the right unit economics around that. Uh, and every time we were almost there, something happened. And the last thing that happened was uh, end of last year, or when the interest rate started to go up on the mortgage, it just reduced by half the conversion rate, right? Because there's so much less, uh, so many less buyers. And every time something like that happened, boom, the cost of acquisition goes up. And we got the to we got to the point that we thought that it's better to shut down the, the, the company in a very, I would say, a dignified way for the, for, uh, I mean, we didn't return a penny to the investors, but we didn't put anyone kind of in, in a very tough situation without going through bankruptcy, without uh, being able to pay uh, all the duties to the, to the employees. Uh, being able to make sure that all of our, none of our customers is being damaged from this process. And that's also, if you ask me what was the biggest lesson, I mean, there's tens of lessons on the day-to-day and -day what you can learn from the product market fit and the conversions and managements and hiring and firing, etc. The biggest lesson is when, is when to realize that it's really the end. You did everything you can in order to try to make it happen. And sometimes, even as an entrepreneur, you need to learn when to give up and when to back off. So to me, that was the biggest lesson. And the biggest lesson, my dear friends, entrepreneurs out there, it's not going to be 100% win rate. Way less. Yeah. But I mean, I, 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 as long as you are giving absolutely everything and leaving everything out there on the pitch, you know, on the game, you know, you know, they're coming out with your head up high. So uh, I can totally, you know, get that from what you're sharing. Now, let's go back to Beef. So with Beef, you know, as you were saying, you know, which you were pushing and you have been pushing in parallel, you guys raised 400 million, tremendous success that you guys are accomplishing. It's like a rocket ship. For the people that are listening to get it, what is, you know, just on the side, on the scope and size right now of, of, of where you guys are at? I mean, anything that you feel comfortable sharing, maybe like number of employees or anything else? Yeah, definitely. We are uh, we are at about uh, quite quite a lot I can share of actually. Uh, headquarter in California, uh, Hayward, uh, California, and the Bay Area. 
We have a pretty uh, large uh, engineering and professional service facility in Israel as well. So as an entrepreneur, I always have this in Israel uh, arm for some reason. Um, I mean, it sounds obvious, but but it's always tough also to manage the time zones and to fly, etc. But I always find myself ending up with uh, with a big Israeli operation. So I guess uh, you cannot take the kid out of the neighborhood eventually. Uh, the company is about 270 people, uh, so quite uh, quite large. But uh, it's also a very operational company, right? I mean, so we have a factory, uh, we have an installation team, a supply chain, a logistics. I mean, so it's not like 270 engineers. It's a heavily operational company. Uh, we are building a very a very real thing, right? I mean, there's no... I mean, there's a lot of software, obviously, and tools, and a lot of technology around it. But at the end of the day, it's uh, it's we we build walls and floors uh, with uh, as as the outcome of all this technology. Super interesting, super exciting. The, there's so little innovation that was done in housing for so many hundreds of years that this could be a lifetime. I can, I can retire, or as I told you, I'm never going to retire. I can end my life in this company doing innovation and keep uh, dri- driving stuff. So this is kind of, I really see it as the end of, uh, uh, end of my life journey. I plan to live for many, many years. So, so, uh, so there's still a lot of stuff to do. And, uh, uh, and we are doing something very, very important because uh, housing Housing is uh, is probably the most important mission. Uh, I could uh, um, I could do it uh, in my life. I mean, six and a half million shortage homes in the U.S. It's a mega problem. It's an international problem. Uh, it's not just an American problem. And every year you have less construction workers because the new generation doesn't get in, and the old generation is retiring. And every year, there's more population in the world that you need to serve. So the demand and the supply going is very different, very different direction. Demand is growing. Deficit is very high. Supply is shrinking. And we need to do something very, very major for, for our children, for our grandchildren. That's, that's how big it is. So then let's talk about, I mean, you, you were saying that this is until the end of your life, you want to push this, right? So... Let's say you're able to um, to go to sleep tonight and uh, you wake up in a world where the vision is realized. You know, you say, you say that you want to push this until the end of your life. So let's say you're up there somewhere and you're looking down and all of a sudden the vision of Viv has been realized. What does that world look like? That every single person in the world can afford a home. The size of the home in Farai, the real estate part of it, right, the location will be changed. It might be an apartment building. It might be a, a single-family home. And the home will protect them, will create the real habitat for them. We, we, it's almost like going back tens of thousands of years old, right? I mean, it's like going to be the real habitat that's protecting them, collaborate with Earth, right? I mean, so doesn't waste energy, doesn't... Uh, doesn't waste, uh, doesn't uh, uh, drop waste into earth, leveraging what earth has to do. I know that it sounds very philosophical, but it's actually 
It's actually a, a dream that I think can be realized way faster than that. Not next year. It's going to take a couple of decades, probably. But it's a, it's a real dream that can be realized out there. Because the home at the end of the day is the one that's protecting us. And protecting is not just from weather. It's not just from bad people. It's need to protect us from pollution. It's need to protect of us by by uh, uh, by make sure that we always have the enough energy that that we need to consume. Uh, it's need to make sure that we have drinking water and good quality drinking water at all the time. And this big machine that we call home—that's why I said it's so complicated machine—can really do it. We have enough surface of this home to create enough energy. We have enough uh, uh, enough. Technologies out there today that we can deal with water and, and, and water generation out of atmospheric water or water recycling and everything else that the home really needs to provide us. I love it. Now, let's talk about the, um, the past, by, giving, by being able to do it with a lens of reflection. Let's say I put you into a time machine, Amit, and I bring you back in time to that moment that... Uh, you know, perhaps you were coming out of um, of the army, you know, wondering what will be next for you. And let's say you were able to have a chat with that younger self, with that younger Amit. And being able to give that younger Amit one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Mentors, mentors, mentors. Every point of the journey. There's a different type of mentor. There's a different type of uh, uh, coaching. There's a different uh, type of help you need. And I still need to give you a second one. It's not going to be the only one. Hire the best people on earth. Always people that are way smarter than you. I love it. I mean, nothing like being surrounded by the right uh, people. Eh? As they say, too, you know, when you go alone, you go faster. But when you go together, you go farther. So uh, no doubt. So I mean, so I'm sure that there's a lot of people right now that uh, that are listening, that I'm sure would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Absolutely, LinkedIn. Yeah, that's probably the best way. Well, I mean, it has been an absolute honor to have you with us today. Thank you so so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. Absolutely, Alejandro. Thank you so much for this opportunity. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.